as they watched, Jesus was taken away and disappeared into the clouds. They stood there, staring into the empty sky. Suddenly, two commoners appeared and said, Galileans, why do you just stand here into nothing, staring into nothingness? This very Jesus will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. So they left the mountain and returned to Jerusalem, walking half a mile. They went to the upper room where they had been living. This included Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. The women were there also and included Jesus' mother, Mary, and his kin. They agreed they were in this for good and completely prayed together. While this was happening, Peter stood in the community. There were about 120 of them in the room at the time and said, Friends, long ago the Spirit spoke through David regarding Judas, who became the guide to those who framed Jesus. Judas was one of us and had his assigned place in this community. It was he, as you know, who with his bribe bought a small farm where he fell and split open his gut spilling out. This is why people referred to it as the blood plot. Peter continued, in the books of Psalms it says, let his farm become desolate so no one can ever live there. So we must choose someone to join us as evidence of Jesus' aliveness. Someone who has been with us throughout the whole time Jesus dwelt among us, from the beginning at John's baptism until the day of his going. They nominated two, Joseph Barsabbas, nicknamed Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, O heart knower of all, please make clear which of these two to receive the rightful share of his undertaking and commission. They had them draw lots, and the share fell to Matthias, who was then counted in with the eleven apostles. The word of God for the world. Good morning. It's good to be here. I was recently asked um, in Nashville to do some work with teenagers and young college students, the same work I do with prisoners, uh, because, you know, teenagers and prisoners are much alike. It was a church I was not familiar with, and I walked to the church, and there was this young man. I'm at the age now where I can't tell if you are somewhere between 15 and 35. And he said, and I said, hey, I'm here to see Adam, that's the minister. And he said, man, you've come on the wrong day. We got one of those university people coming in. And dude, they're the worst. I just looked at him and I said, dude, you are so right. But it's good to be here, and it's good to be welcomed. It's always good to be in North Carolina. Usually when I'm in North Carolina, I'm at Poland Church, sitting somewhere right here. And if I'm not at Poland, I love to be at Providence, sitting somewhere about right here. It's a good community. You are a live community, and you're a community that knows that being church means being outside these walls. 
We also know that God has a good sense of humor. I spend my time with the Hebrew Bible. And this is a Sunday where I cannot escape the New Testament. In fact, several days ago, a colleague inquired about my admiration for the Hebrew Bible. Warmly and sincerely, I related how those stories were so intricately detailed to reveal the presence of the divine through the most dramatic circumstances. Abandoned daughters and sons, a pillar of salt, female double agents, she-bears mauling children, Myriad fireworks and pyrotechnics, a philandering shepherd king dancing naked through the streets, holy CPR twice, and a talking donkey. I love that talking donkey. I finished with a quiet resolve. See, the New Testament just doesn't have the same urgency or excitement. Within hours, Julie and I confirmed the dates of this engagement, and I turned to the first chapter of Acts to find abandonment, strangers spouting out cryptic sayings, trauma, disembowelment, refugees, and divine gambling. The story is familiar and garnishes such importance that the Church Universal has declared this Sunday the Feast of the Ascension. I would imagine many of us have fond memories of being gathered around a Sunday school felt board where a very clean, very white, very tall Jesus was moved upward. We conjured up the disciples' reactions and words Maybe they were clapping and pumping their fists in the air and screaming, Hey, look at Jesus. Man, he sure can fly. Or, Go, Jesus. As Baptists, we may not have had a calendar reminder of the ascension, but we have numerously heard about Jesus miraculously rising to the heavens with triumph, honor, power, and glory an act that has repeatedly drawn our eyes to the clouds. Yet, when we read that text, the first phrase startles us with reality. They stood there staring into the empty sky. There was no fist pumping or shouting or clapping. The Galileans were scared of a harsh reality. The peasant man with whom they had traveled, loved, lived, and dined was executed. Their dreams of a new life where all were taken care in a commonwealth were crushed. They were foreigners in a strange city. They were poor amongst the rich. They were religious minorities in the midst of a state-endorsed temple system. And they were illegals surrounded by citizens. No, there was no rejoicing, exultation, or feasting amongst the earliest followers of a movement simply called the Way. In this moment, none of them could recall the Jesus who touched lepers or spit into mud and patted the eyes of blind. 
The Jesus who sat with the Samaritan woman and asked for water. The Jesus that wrote in the sand and huddled with a fearful adulterer. Gone from their minds was the Jesus who hauled in nets full of fish when the fisherman's efforts immediately prior proved fruitless. And gone was the Jesus who broke bread over and over and over until all were fed. That Jesus was gone. Jesus was gone. Those gathered for the sacred Jewish holiday of Passover had witnessed the very public execution of a man who influenced years of their life. Crucifixion. Roman capital punishment with its origins rooted in military pranks where soldiers nailed animals to planks of wood was reserved for those who threatened imperial practices and the rights of Roman citizens. To Rome, Jesus was a dirty animal that threatened the status quo. To Rome, the followers of the way were also animals, threats, and pests needing exterminating. No, this was no feast. This was trauma. For the earliest believers, this was their Auschwitz, their Nagasaki, their Trail of Tears. No wonder these believers retreated, feeling abandoned and displaced. The first believers were plagued with some insurmountable image problems and unconquerable societal woes. An executed leader, a turncoat disciple, gut-spilling, refugee status, and civic persecution are never used as credentials for building a credible community. Surely, the characteristics essential for this new fledgling, fledgling group of faith would need to be power, prestige, and notoriety. It is no wonder that human nature proposed electing a more reputable successor. In striving to find the right community, they wanted an admirable replacement for Judas. It's as almost as if a first-century public relations company relayed the awful news about their identity. Look, if y'all all are going out there to fulfill this commission, you need to clean up your act. That makes sense. What have people asked about Judas? Hey, you people with the good news, wasn't Judas one of you? This could leave a community of faith tongue-tied, searching for an effective counterpoint, a respectable replacement would surely make them more fit for carrying a message of aliveness. We have a roll call of those early believers who were fit for proclaiming good news. Simon Peter, a close disciple that almost drowned, resorted to violence, cursed Jesus, and swore he never knew him, denying him three times can he lead a community call to bring good news? Look at his support, the remaining disciples, who often misunderstood parables, fell asleep, and fled in moments of crises. There is a zealot among them, a zealot, a revolutionary thief. They're going to proclaim Jesus' aliveness? Well, we have Jesus' mother Mary and his kin, 
But didn't she lose Jesus for three days in a foreign city? And at the start of his proclamation, joined his family and said, he's out of his mind. They're going to proclaim aliveness. Well, there's the leading missionary amongst them, Paul, his visionary, steeped in elaborate fiction, and his hands stained with the blood of persecuted. And he gets to be evidence of Jesus' aliveness. So this earliest community, composed of grumbling widows who complained about not getting their share of blankets and food, leaders who spent more time in jails than in pulpits, and members like Ananias and Sapphira who lied about offerings. These are the folks that are going to spread the good news of Jesus' aliveness. Yes. A resounding yes. Because talking about divine aliveness is not talking about yourself. When you pick up the artifacts called newspapers, you do not read a reporter's account of how they felt about an earthquake in Nepal or how they were personally affected by faulty school buses. Outside of editorials, newspapers strive to offer accounts free of opinions. You read about the event. You read about what was witnessed. Personally, we should be a little weary of ego-drenched opinions where every individual's unique personal relationship with Jesus supersedes the unaddressed, grave issues that face the human race and the world at large, interfering with our ability to fulfill the kinship of God. This is a way of living that promotes being number one as opposed to being one amongst 12 or one amongst 120 or one amongst a commonwealth. The holy commonwealth is evidence of Jesus' aliveness. And in some contemporary religious environments, This seems to matter less than the celebrity of the proclaimer and the opinions of the individual congregants. So we must choose someone to join us as evidence of Jesus' aliveness. The answer comes to them in prayer. And church history confirms that Justice and Matthias were both critical leaders of the early church. Yet, what happens next is extraordinary. This ragtag group of Galileans was asked to talk about divine aliveness in Jerusalem. This is not so simple. They were country peasants in an urban center that had great influence from the world superpower at the time, Rome. In addition, this is the place where Jesus was arrested, beaten, and executed. Now we're supposed to talk about aliveness? The text tells us. But they agreed they were in this for good, and they prayed together completely. I imagine it took great courage to leave the safety of the upper room. 
They may have been thinking that a Jewish audience in Jerusalem would not be so difficult. After all, they're the same Jewish people talking to Jewish people. And then the Spirit urges them to talk about divine aliveness to Judea. Wait, wait, Judea? Really? It's a little bit bigger than Jerusalem. Not everyone's going to be Jewish. But there's 120 of us. I guess we can try. And then the Spirit urges them to talk about divine aliveness in Samaria. What? Samaria? You got this all wrong. Those half-breeds? They don't read the same scripture. They don't talk the same language. They have different political views. And then the Spirit urges them to talk about divine aliveness to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles, you got to be kidding us. They're pagans. They make fun of us in the market, and they exclude us from their government. That's how divine aliveness works. It's wild mustard seed or leaven in the dough. It dissolves obstinate boundaries and barriers that do not want to come down so easily. It begins with the comfortable and the known Jewish people talking to Jewish people. Then someone accepts the Greek Jews with their language difference and their cosmopolitan ways. Next, the Samaritans are given the good news of divine aliveness and they're baptized and around the table. Then the Ethiopian eunuch is heralded as a sign of divine aliveness. The Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian is is bad enough he's got ebony skin, but a eunuch? And the Ethiopian eunuch is a sign of divine aliveness. And then the floodgates open. Here come the Greeks, the Romans, the Italians, the Turks, the Asians, the the, uh, Africans. What's happening to this community? All of these folks, signs of divine aliveness. Noted Baptist preacher and Harvard Divinity School professor Harvey Cox details these earliest believers in his new book, The Future of Faith. The first followers of the way, armed with only feet and prayer, worked to embody the benevolence and justice love of Brother Jesus. There were no certainties, no definitives, no budgets, no precise trajectories, There was just faith in the kinship of God and divine aliveness that would unfold and spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the world. Initially, the eyes may have gazed longingly at the sky, but the spirit planted their feet firmly in soil. As Cox notes, the earlier followers of the way worked at care, community service, and working for the poor and the marginalized. 
they fully understood that the kingdom of God meant something that happens in and to this world and within our hearts. After three centuries, Emperor Constantine proclaimed Christianity. The new name for the way? The official religion of the Roman Empire. And the work of the Spirit became a government tool. The uncertainty and mystery of divine aliveness gave way to uniformed opinions, domestication, and set acceptable limits known as beliefs. Church leaders have used these beliefs not to engage the ethics of Jesus, but to exclude, ignore, and disparage. Church history is stained with institutional opinions that have proven to be maliciously damaging to so many people. As Baptists, we need not search too far in our own history to see this. We've had certain beliefs about African Americans, women, the poor, laborers, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered people. Simply, we have looked over the heads of many sisters and brothers and fixed our eyes on the sky. We have clung to our personal beliefs and denied the acts of faith of those earliest followers of Jesus. And they knew that faith was simply living without a fear that cripples one from working for this kinship of God. Let me clarify. This is not a homiletic exercise that abdicates the importance of choice in the life of the church. We will be called daily to make choices about the evidence of divine aliveness. In a few moments, when we walk out those doors, vital choices will need to be made. And those choices will be critical in fulfilling the kingdom. In those moments, we will either choose the Jesus who has our eyes fixed on clouds of nothingness or onto the Jesus who walked, touched, spat, broke, padded, hauled, wrote, suffered, wept, fed, bled, and huddled. One of my greatest mentors is not a professor that resides in the hallowed halls of the Divinity School, nor is it a great homilist from the free pulpits of progressive Baptist churches. No, she is an octogenarian with little financial resources and even less notoriety. Her tattered Oxford annotated Bible is worn, marked, dog-eared, and stuffed with paper notes. Her smile is welcoming, and her touch gentle, and her laugh infectious. In fact, especially when she looks up from her pew and sees me and says, It's my righteous sister. After such remark, she usually pads the pew of Pullen Church and notions for me to take my seat, and I do. When Moral Mondays began in Raleigh a few years ago, 
I was conflicted about the invitation to sit around a planning table of community organizers. State budgeting would drastically reduce assistance to the poorest families of North Carolina, denying them living wages, medical benefits, and food assistance, while the richest families benefited from tax cuts. Children dependent on public education would suffer from the loss of teachers and teachers' assistants, overcrowding classrooms, restricting curriculum consistency, and eliminating textbooks. The right to vote was restricted and would drastically affect people of color, a right that was earned because of violence, heartache, and bloodshed. Environmental programs were being eradicated, and large corporations were making local habitats hazardous without any repercussions. Guns were heralded on college campuses, libraries, restaurants, and churches. Guns in churches. These legislations were devastating and unjust, but I could not figure out if participation with Jewish, Islamic, African-American, secular humanist, Latino, laborer, and queer leaders on a more public level was an act of faith. My feet were aching to stand and march, but my gut was frightened and tense and spilling over. I was neither secure about the outcome nor certain about public reaction. But you see, that's how active faith is. It's scary, gut-wrenching, traumatic, and most days, extremely confusing. I relayed my confusion to Suzanne while sitting at my favorite outside cafe in Raleigh. With an easy smile, she sat in a few moments of silence. Silence. Silence is not what I wanted in the midst of confusion. <laughs> I wanted definitives, action items, identity, precise trajectories, a budget, certainties, right opinions, reputable answers. When she broke her fast of words, she simply said, well, sakes alive. Sometimes I need to see Jesus, and sometimes I need to be Jesus. Sometimes I need to see Jesus, and sometimes I need to be Jesus. This has been Suzanne's journey. Although we are close, she has never told me the details of her life. It is only from mutual friends that I learned of her abandonment by a husband who left her with three small children, the devastation of suicide that tormented her family, and her own battle with a serious illness. No. From Suzanne, I learned different stories. Stories about walking and escorting African-American children to school during integration in Durham County. About feeding and teaching migrant workers around her small kitchen table. I witnessed her opening the scriptures over and over and letting new breath and new ideas give legs to ancient stories.
Sometimes I drove her to visit a death row inmate. She visited a man that no one else would visit who was convicted of unthinkable and unmentionable crimes. When I mustered up the courage to walk into that planning meeting, Suzanne was there, patting the seat cushion and smiling. The writer of Acts reminds us in the first volume, Luke, that after Jesus was driven out into the desert, starved to the brink of death, suffered physical torment, and sustained spiritual temptations, he walked into his hometown temple, most likely very dirty. When addressing the crowd, he did not talk about himself, but he used the words from the prophet Isaiah to conjure divine aliveness. The Spirit is here, anointing me to bring all the good news to the poor, to proclaim release for all the prisoners and recovery for all those who are afflicted, to let all the enslaved go free, to proclaim for all this time of divine favor. Yes, we will all make a choice, certainly and mysteriously, to see Jesus and to be Jesus. Now, sakes alive, that's something we can feast about. Amen. Amen.